I want to start our series and this evening by considering our salvation. Maybe you've been saved at a young age. Maybe you've been saved in college or perhaps even recently. Um, maybe you haven't been saved. But for those of you who have been saved, I want to ask the question, now what? What is life like after becoming a Christian? Another way to ask it is, why has God saved you? I don't know about you, but this is a question that I think about often in my own life. Why has God saved us? And I think we could give an ethereal answer, maybe one that's kind of less concrete, and just say, well, he saves us for his glory. Okay, sure, fair enough. But looking at details now, why has he saved us? What has he saved us to and for what purpose? And I think we all kind of intuitively understand that somehow God wants to use us. He wants to use us for his glory in a specific way. Now, you might notice this mound of books to my left, and I'm not sure if turning to all these books is helpful or not. Let me show you what I mean. For example, we know that God views us as instruments in the Redeemer's hands so that we may learn how to embrace obscurity and then that we can return to this lost art of disciple-making. Okay. However, in order to effectively do this, we must stand in the shadow of the Almighty while trusting God and avoiding the strange fire that might catch you up. Don't go into the strange fire. So that we can do the one thing that you can't do in heaven, which is what? Evangelize. Good. All the while, we're to do this while we're desiring God and we don't want to... Don't waste your life, right? Don't waste your life. You don't want to do that. And yet we're supposed to do this within the church. Right? We're supposed to do this in the church. And so, of course, Mark Dever helps us out, nine marks of a healthy church, of what to look for in a church. <clears throat> but make sure that your church is doing church according to the master's plan for church. And all the while, don't forget to stop dating the church, or later he released the same book called Why Church Matters. Now, for those of you who are in the church, you might start thinking about glorifying God through a relationship or through uh, marriage down the road. So you want to, of course, be an exemplary husband, right, Dallas? Or for you gals, an excellent wife, the couple, the partner to this book. And speaking of dating, Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which is the same book as Boy Meets Girl. And I think, in my opinion, uh, Kevin DeYoung summarizes it the best when he says, man, this is just crazy busy. And why don't you go ahead and just do something? <laughs> now, what does that demonstrate to us? This is just a tiny sampling. I just pulled some books off my shelf at random that have to do with our lives as Christians after salvation. There's a lot of input into what we're supposed to do as believers once we've been saved. Now, all these books are good, and there's lots of things to glean from them. However, what I want to do this summer is look at, well, I know it's going to be cliche, but we're going to look at the best book. We're going to look at this book, and specifically, we're going to hone in on, on a few chapters of this book. And I want to do that to kind of simplify it and to give us a clear direction for our life as Christians. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, and we've titled the, the series, The Mindset of a Minister. Our goal from this series is to be informed about what our role as ministers of the gospel is to be like. We're going to learn from the Apostle Paul about what sort of perspectives we ought to have toward ministry, what sort of motivations should be driving our ministry, and what our role is compared to God's role in the ministry. Essentially, I've got to throw in one more. We're going to get some thoughts for young men while also including the women in as well. Uh, pertaining to ministry. And so that's the task that we're going to accomplish this summer, hopefully, is to better understand our role in the ministry. Now, in order to do this, we're going to study 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, just the end of 1 and then the beginning of 4, but all of 2 and 3. And to do that, uh, tonight I feel that it will be appropriate to kind of set the context to begin this series of what is going on in this book of 1 Corinthians. It's a pretty long book and kind of complicated. Uh, there's 16 chapters. And so just to kind of set the context, beginning in chapter 1, if you look in your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is just an introduction. And then verses 4 to 9 is really a benediction of blessing. And Paul launches into the point of his letter in verse 10. So look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Now, I exhort you, brethren... 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. If you were to read on to verse 11, you would see that there were quarrels in this church. And here's what we find from these two verses, friends, and the rest of the book, is that the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church was a divided church. They were divided. There was disunity within this church, and not just in a few places. As you continue to read through 1 Corinthians, you quickly see they were divided pertaining to their spiritual leaders. In fact, look at verse 12. He gives an example. He says, each one of you is saying, well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. He says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Friends, they were divided over who their spiritual leaders were. As you keep reading, you'll see they were divided about what biblical ministry was. They were divided about sexuality and immorality. They were divided about how Christians should interact pertaining to conflict and in the courts. They were divided about marriage. They were divided about how to interact with false religions and their practices, like meat sacrifice to idols. They were divided about spiritual gifts, and they were divided about the resurrection and the second coming. This was a deeply divided church. There were divisions running rampant. And really, I want to submit to you this. The driving factor of the divisions that existed in this church was that everyone thought more of their own opinion than they needed to. Everyone had elevated their own opinion, or I'll use this term, their own wisdom as they tried to interact in the body of Christ. They were wise in their own estimation. Like the Greeks, they were turning to Sophos or Sophia, the knowledge and wisdom of man instead of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Therefore, Paul writes this letter to straighten some things out. He's got some work to do. Some big-time work to do. And in order to address these areas of disunity, Paul is going to lay a theological framework of the cross as the basis for which the rest of his arguments are going to flow. He's going to start with the cross, and he's going to show that the cross is what ultimately and what should be dividing people. The cross is the ultimate division. The cross divides humanity the right way. It's God's way of dividing mankind. And yet, as we saw, and we'll continue to see, the Corinthian church were making phony divisions within themselves. And so what he's going to do, and I want to make sure this is clear, there's divisions going on. What Paul's going to do is he's going to use his own ministry that they had experienced firsthand. He's going to set that forth in chapters 1 through 4 as a kind of example of the things to divide over and the things to unite over. He's essentially going to set forth his preaching ministry as an example that is in turn going to rebuke the Corinthians. And actually, I just want to show you this a little bit. (coughs) He makes a series of statements about his own preaching that kind of ties together chapters 1 through 4. So look at chapter 1, look at verse 17. The first one, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And so really, this first statement that Paul's making, as we're just going to kind of survey this real quick, this first statement, he's talking about the objective of his ministry. He's talking about the objective of his ministry. And you hear in here how there's kind of a subtle rebuke, isn't there? There's a rebuke to the Corinthians. And following this, what he's going to discuss is the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. Now, flip over to chapter 2. He does this again in verses 1 to 5, a little bit longer text. But now he's going to make a statement about the message and the motive of his ministry. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with the superiority, superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now again, Paul is setting forth the motives of his ministry and the message of his ministry, and in so doing, he is speaking about even his own deficiencies. And yet, as we ask the question, why, why is Paul setting forth this passage, an example of his own ministry, what comes forth is that, again, remember, he's calling them to unity, which is going to require humility. 
So Paul is providing his own example of ministry and the humility that characterized it in order to rebuke the Corinthians and draw them to unity. He follows this with another comparison of the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And again, to drive home the point that the Corinthians needed to think less of their own opinions and more of God's knowledge and his wisdom. Therefore, he's showing them that their personal wisdom wasn't that wise and they needed to find their rest in Scripture and Scripture alone. Now go to chapter 3. We see a third statement from Paul, verse 1. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. Now again, a third aspect of Paul's ministry here that he's setting forth in a third statement is he's showing his consideration for the recipients of his ministry, namely the Corinthians. In other words, I want you to think about this, gang. Paul could have totally overwhelmed the Corinthians with all of his knowledge and wisdom. He could have completely buried them in doctrine, buried them with conviction about how they ought to have been living, and smacked them all at once, and it would have crushed them. But he didn't do that. He was sensitive to his audience and he knew what they could handle. And therefore, again, Paul's example of ministry is, being a, is acting as a rebuke to the Corinthians because they were doing that exact thing. They were arguing with one another, dividing over petty issues, elevating their own knowledge, their own wisdom, their own opinions over God's word. And so again, Paul uses his own ministry as an example in serving them, really. And the last one is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this one closes out our summer series by the time we get there later in the summer. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3. Again, Paul speaking about his own ministry. He says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. And so I think we could say that the final aspect of his ministry that he sets forward is the judgment of his ministry. And in the end, Paul says, hey, none of them are going to judge his ministry. He's not even going to judge his own ministry, but he's going to leave that to God. A few verses earlier, Paul says that his focus was to be faithful. He just wanted to be faithful and leave the results to God. And so, friends, what emerges from chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians is an incredible look into the mindset of an excellent minister. An excellent minister. Someone who really had a heart for people. Someone who had a heart for Christ. I mean, if you think about it, Paul labored over the Corinthian church. How long would it take to write a letter like this with this much detail and thought that goes into it? He labored over these guys. His heart broke for them. This is the one, this is the, the man that we're going to study, is the, the Apostle Paul himself. And this is not the only church that his heart broke for. This is not the only church he gave himself to and invested in. And so, in the midst of looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I want to kind of look at it behind the scenes and think about Paul, his ministry, his motives, his uh, really drive for doing what he does and what he focused on doing and what he didn't focus on doing. So that's the goal for the summer. I think it's going to be a good summer. Uh, again, the mindset of a minister. I want to equip us to do ministry. I don't want us to be apathetic, just cul-de-sac Christians. I want us to be active, going out and engaging in the ministry. So are you ready for this adventure? I'm pretty pumped. However, we have to go back. We've got to go back to 1 Corinthians 1 to begin this. There's kind of the overview. And so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 1. And before we even get to the real passage, we have to set a little bit more context. Uh, verse 17. We're going to look at really Paul's mission here. Verse 17, I want to read it again. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So let's kind of consider this again. Here's the scene. The Corinthians are boasting about who baptized them. Can you imagine that? I think we can. I want to translate that to today for a moment. How would you feel if John Piper or John MacArthur or Matt Chandler had done your wedding? Or if they themselves had actually baptized you? 
you can kind of begin to relate to this, is that even our heroes of the faith, I mean, if Paul Washer did my wedding, I'd be like, man, this is going to be a great marriage, right? <laughs> we can kind of relate for a moment that there is a tendency in us to, to place an inappropriate affection on the human instruments that God uses. We can easily lose our focus from being on Christ and focus it on his instrument that he uses, which is the, the leader or the preacher or the pastor or whoever. And so Paul in humility says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you should say that you were baptized in my name. And so Paul explains in verse 17 that he did not come to baptize. That was not his missionary focus in the beginning, but instead his focus was to preach the gospel. This was his mission. His single focus was to preach the gospel, to declare the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that now man had a way to be made right with God. That was his message. And for the same reason he did not baptize people, he was also very careful about how he delivered this message. He didn't baptize people because he didn't want them to put their focus on him. And look again at 17. He says that he didn't preach the gospel in cleverness of speech. Right? The same driving reason. Now you think about this. Why would he not want to preach this in cleverness of speech? Why would Paul not want to preach this with a sophisticated vocabulary? With excellent uh, logic and rhetoric? Well, the same reason, friends. Because it's so easy for us to misappropriate our affections onto the man or the woman instead of the Savior whom they're preaching about. You think about this. If someone comes in lofty lofty language, cleverness of speech, really noble and, and fluent speaker, oftentimes that's what we're talking about. Oftentimes we focus our attention on the speaker instead of on the God whom they're speaking about. And this is such a convicting thing for me as I have opportunities to share is that, man, Paul's determination was to preach Christ not in elevated speech, but just in the simplicity of the gospel. Now, friends, what's the, the lesson for all of us then? What is the takeaway for us? And I want to go a little bit broader in terms of application for a moment. What Paul is talking about is blurring the gospel with other things. And you think about the tendency in today. What do we blur the gospel with? We blur the gospel with entertainment, right? We need to get into the movie scene or we need to get in the music industry. We blur the gospel with sports. Oh man, if only we had a celebrity preacher who was an NBA all-star, then the gospel would really go forward. So we put a lot of efforts into that. We, put our, we mix the gospel with politics. We mix the gospel with foreign relations. We mix the gospel with social wel welfare. We mix the gospel with community outreach. Again, none of these things are necessarily bad, but you can see quickly how we've began to blur the message. We've began to confuse what the message really is. Likewise, we can blur it with humor, elevated vocabulary, and fluent speaking. All of these things, guys, will never get anyone to God. No, none of them will reconcile any man or woman from a lost state to God. Only the gospel can do that. And therefore... To serve that purpose, Paul narrowed in on what is the message. I'm going to stick to that. The good news of Jesus Christ. I think there's a warning there for us is that when we begin to mix the gospel with our own hobby horse agenda, the gospel plus something else, the gospel mixed with this. Yeah, I want you to sign up for this, but I also want you to sign up for this club that I'm a part of. When we begin to mix the gospel, what happens is, is that we cause unnecessary divisions in the church, and potentially even push away people that never needed to be pushed away. Do you see how that happens? Guys, this is a very real and present application. Muddy, muddying the gospel with your club that you're a part of, or this organization, or this other agenda, instead of just keeping the message on Christ. We must have, therefore, a singly devoted mindset to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, following this, Paul's going to talk more about his preaching of the gospel, and specifically, he's going to show how foolish the divisions were that were existing in the Corinthian church. And really, he's going to compare and contrast these divisions with the division that the cross causes. He's basically going to say, friends, you're dividing over these petty issues. Look at the bigger picture. The cross of Christ has already divided you, and you know what? 
You're on the same side. You're on the same side of the division line, and yet now you're dividing among yourselves. And I, I think it, it reminds me of if you've ever played sports and you've seen another team that you're playing start to get in a fight with one another, how do you feel when you're their opponent? You almost just kind of laugh. It's like, all right, we're just going to let them kind of beat themselves up, right? On a more serious note, though, how about in wars? If a country is engaging in another country with war and one country begins to break out in civil war, do you realize that that country is actually helping their opponent? I mean, if I'm the opposing country, I'm going to be like, hey, let's pull our troops out and see how this thing shakes out, right? That's exactly what you would do. And yet you think about it, that's exactly what's going on here. So Paul is shaking them up and saying, why are you dividing? You're on the same side of the division line. The battle's not in here, it's out there. And so the cross is what has made this division. The cross has divided the saved from the unsaved, but it hasn't divided the saved. It wasn't meant to divide the saved. Therefore, like I said, Paul's laying a framework of the cross in order to adjust their perspective so that they can be the type of unified church that God wants them to be. So the first point in the outline is that the cross divides the human race truly and rightly. Again, notice verse 18. He begins with the word for, which connects it back to what he's been talking about. Verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So in setting forth this ultimate divider, which is the cross, he reminds the Corinthians about the division in the world pertaining to this cross. And you stop and think about this statement for a moment and apply it to our gospel proclamation today. Do people think that we're particularly smart as Christians who proclaim the gospel? Do people view us as particularly popular? I mean, maybe you've gone with these guys and gone up to campus and shared your faith. Do you get a, a standing applause from the MSU students on campus for being bold with the gospel? Do people think that, wow, that, that's a really great-looking person there. They just, I wish I could be like them. Uh, no, that is not how we are received in this world. If you don't know that yet, I'm going to challenge you to go share your faith on campus. That is not how we are received. We are not received as smart or popular or good-looking. In fact, the world, to put it bluntly, says that we're idiots, we're unpopular, and we should be despised. So the point in bringing up the foolishness of the cross is to show how it divides humanity. Our job then as preachers and proclaimers of the good news is simply to do just that, to preach and to proclaim. And friends, if you've ever shared a message with someone before, maybe in a small group or in a larger setting, I've had some opportunities to do this in different settings besides cross life. I've given a message and had people respond in a whole myriad of different ways. On the one hand, there's some people who respond in humility and maybe brokenness over their sin and they really are convicted about their sin and want to be right with God. On the other hand, you've got believers who are really built up and encouraged and feel joy in their hearts. And in the same message, those are both in the same message, in the same message, you have people who are angry and mad about what was just shared. They're offended. And then you have other people who just think, oh, that guy's an idiot. He's just crazy. He's into the Jesus stuff and heaven, <sighs> whatever. And this is all just from one message one message. Do you see how the cross acts then as a dividing factor for all of humanity? The cross is what ultimately divides humanity. And really, the cross is revealed then as the power of God to some, and yet the foolishness to the maximum to others. Foolishness and power of God. Complete opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet that's what the cross does. So then, therefore, we're simply just to be instruments in God's hands who proclaims this message and let him work out the divisions. Now, before moving on, I did want to point out one other thing in verse 18, a cool little nugget here. Um, <clears throat> the phrase, those who are being saved, is a present passive participle. And what that means, and the reason that's important, is because it really focuses the attention on God who is saving. In other words, as Paul preached the gospel, many people would reject his message. And yet, there's a confidence to know that God is in the midst of, of this audience drawing people to himself. It's present, which, and, and it's a participle, which means it's ongoing, but it's passive. 
meaning that God is the one drawing them. Paul's job, therefore, is to throw the message out there, to deliver it, and let God do the work of drawing. That's just encouraging for me. I mean, friends, we ought to let this encourage us greatly in our evangelistic efforts, in our sharing of our faith, is that even if you don't see it right away, God could be working in a person's heart and drawing them. In fact, I wanted to share a quick story. Uh, in, in interacting with Jeanette and Kyla, I came back from a trip uh, back east. And when I say back east, I mean really back east, a long ways back east. And uh, while they were over in the east, they were able to hear from several uh, people who had become believers in this country. And one of the neat things that they, they saw as a continuous theme of all of these people who had been saved by Jesus was that God had been drawing them long before they ever made a profession of faith. Bailey was on the trip too. God had been drawing them. Lo- didn't want to forget you, Bailey. I saw you nodding your head. Probably amen in two. God had been drawing them long before they made a profession of faith. He had been working in their hearts through various means and various scenarios, pricking and prodding until the moment where they finally had come to faith. And, and friends, I just want that to be an encouragement to us. That man, God is working. Our job is to preach the gospel. God uses it to divide humanity. And he's drawing those whom he will and not drawing those whom he won't. So let's move to verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now that you may notice this is in quotes or in all caps, and it's because Paul is quoting now from Isaiah 29 verse 14, and he's doing that very strategically to tie in with the point that he's making. And really, it's fascinating. We don't have time. I had it in here and had to delete it. But Isaiah 29, in this chapter, God is foretelling a time when he was going to judge Israel. And because of Israel's continual sin and rejecting of God, God would judge them, get this, by blinding them even more. They had began to reject God, so now God was going to blind their eyes so that they would read and they would not understand. God's describing a scene in Isaiah where they cannot comprehend what they're reading. And in verse 13 of that passage, it says that they had removed their hearts from God, therefore God blinded them. They had removed their hearts from God, and get this, they had followed what was a tradition of religion. Oh man, now we're starting to get the context to pop. Therefore, when you get to verse 14 in Isaiah 29, God says that he will cause the wisdom of their wise ones to perish and the discernment of their discerning to be concealed. And essentially, friends, what God is saying in Isaiah 29 is that if you want to go with human wisdom, if you want to go with man-made religion, if you want to elevate man's ability to do this, okay, I'm going to let you go. And friends, trust me, you do not want God to do this. You do not want God, to use another passage, to give you over to your sinful desires. And that's what he did in Isaiah's context. And now Paul is using that. He's pulling it in and saying, Corinthian church, do you realize you're doing the same thing? You are playing with fire. You are mingling the word of God and the wisdom of God with man's wisdom. You are mingling that with man-made religion and philosophy. And now, if you're not careful, God's judgment is going to come upon you by blinding you. It's going to blind you so that while right now you cannot believe or you choose not to believe, you may get to a point where you cannot and will not believe. It goes from a choice to a stagnant position of hardened unbelief. And if you look at verse 20, Paul continues the same argument. He says, rhetorically so, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Before I explain this, i got to share another illustration. Have you ever done something and thought to yourself, man, I am one smart guy. Or ladies, wow, I am a clever gal. And maybe you wouldn't say this out loud, but maybe you're thinking it i got to share just a humbling experience for me just recently. I didn't have this conscious thought, but I was kind of feeling it inside. I engaged in my second ever electrical project this weekend, which literally is playing with fire in my case, um, and got it all wired up and got the outlets ready to go or the switches and got the plugs ready to go. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm figuring this stuff out. Well, I did this before I had turned the power on and... That was my first mistake. I should have tested it first. 
So I went downstairs, turned on the power, went back upstairs to see one of the outlets sparking and throwing out sparks, sprinted back downstairs, couldn't remember which breaker I'd even turned off, so I just flipped all the breakers off. I was like, oh, gosh. All right, Lord, that's humbling. And uh, so I called up Brennan downstairs. I said, Brennan, you got to help me turn these breakers on one by one. Gets to the one. Okay, turn that one back off. And uh, that was my humbling lesson for the weekend. But if you're like me, I, I mean, this is not an uncommon thought that I have. Wow, Matt, you're pretty smart. You know, you're getting this thing down. Friends, you know that God's really not impressed by our wisdom. He's really not impressed by what we think we know. In fact, I would even say this, even had I nailed that electrical project and got it perfectly right, God is still not impressed. You want to know why? God designed the electrons that flow through the wires that make, I mean, God's wisdom is like so far above even when we do things right and we do understand something that that's really what's behind Paul's rhetorical questions in verse 20. He's saying, where is the wise man? Oh, your best wise man? Bring him forward. God's wisdom is so much more wise than you. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? You see, friends, these rhetorical questions are being asked to humble the Corinthians. Paul is asking them questions saying, you're not as smart as you think you are. You've departed from God's wisdom and his wisdom's here and yours is here. He's asking these questions to humble the Corinthians. And really, verse 20 answers the question, how does God view those who wish to rely on human wisdom and I think that the answer is this. Human wisdom can't get you to God. Human wisdom cannot get you to God. And therefore, the expression of God's judgment is seen in him giving them over to their pursuits of worldly and human wisdom, the kind of wisdom that is from below rather than from above. He gives them over to these pursuits. And he essentially weighs all of mankind and says, okay, now that I've given you over, what do you have to show for it? And the answer is nothing. It hasn't gotten you to God. It hasn't made you wise enough to be equal with me. Therefore, it was useless. Okay, where are we? Let's go to verse 21. After these rhetorical questions in verse 20, Paul answers his own question in lieu of God's wisdom. And really, he's going to give a reason why this is the case. Why is there no one wise compared to God? Why do they all fall flat? Verse 21, for or because, since... It, or since, <laughs> in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, like I've been saying, the wisdom of man does not lead you to God. And I just want to ask, friends, as we look around today, has technology increased the wisdom of man and the knowledge of man? Has the internet increased overall knowledge? I think we could say, yes, we know probably more than any generation has known about more things than any generation has known. And yet, has this knowledge and wisdom, and maybe you could add in writing abilities, speaking abilities, has all of this as a whole brought our society closer to God? <laughs> no. In fact, it's done the exact opposite. The more that we have turned to rely on human wisdom, and human knowledge, the more we have actually been driven away from God. The exact opposite has occurred. And so let's return to the Corinthian context. Paul now is laying out the true division that the Corinthians should have been thinking about, namely that the division that occurs at the cross. And you notice the irony here. Being that man's wisdom does not lead one to knowing God, the Lord has kind of set this forth as its own kind of example. He says at the same time, those who are being saved, they're being saved by a quote-unquote foolish message, and yet it's the wisdom of the world that will lead to their condemnation. You see the kind of play on words and the irony going on here. By the, by the world's assessment, the message of the gospel is foolish, and yet to those being saved, it's the power of God. Friends, what happens when we walk across the street to Montana State and we share the gospel? Right, we've already been thinking about this. What happens when at work you begin to engage unbelievers with the precious, redeeming, glorious truth of the gospel that if you're a believer should light you up? You should be on fire about the gospel. And yet what happens when you begin to talk about your precious Jesus with the unbelieving world? Do they like it? No. They look at you and they say, foolish. 
they say foolish. To you, the power of God. Man, nothing has changed my life personally more than the gospel and coming to know Jesus Christ as my own Lord and Savior. And then you share that with someone, and man, I'm so tempted to just think. In every scenario, I share it, and they reject it. I'm so tempted to think, man, pearls before swine. They trample on the precious pearl of the gospel. And I think there's a reason for this. As you look at what's going on at the university, their authority, they've set their authority in what we can experimentally know, what we can observe, right? The scientific method. An individual's uh, subjective authority now has become their greater authority. Or show me with hard facts and science. And really, they've diverted authority from God. And again, what have they done? What has this, uh, you know, academic and very educated university done? They've done the exact same thing. They have done the exact same thing that this whole passage is talking about. The wisdom of the world does not bring you to know God. It's the same scenario, friends. Now, I do want to encourage you that as you face opposition and as you face persecution, don't be discouraged. God said this was going to happen 2,000 years ago. God wrote about the same exact thing that we're all experiencing. If you're being bold, and if you're being the sort of witness that God has called you to be, and you're facing some pushback and some persecution, you know what? God said this was going to happen 2,000 years ago. So take comfort in that. It's all going according to plan. Now, where we're going to go next, the next major kind of movement of this passage is that the cross divides God's wisdom and power from man's wisdom and power. So we're still talking about the cross divides, but now he's going to hone in on God's power and wisdom versus man's power and wisdom. Look at verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And I want to tell you this. These two examples, he's now setting forth two examples. These two examples, namely the Jews and the Greeks, represent what we see in the world today at large. The Jews wanted signs. In order to validate their truth, they demanded signs. And friends, there's a sense in which Jews here can represent all religions in the world today. And here's why I can say this, is that all religions that are tied to to tradition, all religions that are tied to tradition and ritual overseeking the truth fall into the same category as the Jews here. Why is that? Because they have trusted in man's man-made religion and therefore there is no power. There's no power. You walk into these dead religions and that's exactly what you feel. If you're a born-again Christian, you walk into some, some of these places of their religious practice and the feeling that you take away is just deadness. It's deadness. It's dead orthodoxy. It's dead tradition. It's dead ritual. This is categoristic of all of man-made religion right here is that the Jews want signs. Why do they want signs? They want signs because they have no internal witness of the power of God. Friends, if you've been born again, then you don't need a sign. You don't need an external sign. You don't need God to make that car flip upside down. Why? Because you have experienced something far greater than that internally. You've experienced the redeeming grace of God within your heart and soul that no one will ever unconvince me of. Can you relate to that? You understand now why the Jews seek for signs. They didn't know this power. They, well, we need, we need, hold on, we need some proof of this. I mean, it just sounds like our world today, doesn't it? Well, go, no, you have to prove to me that the Bible is the word of God. Prove to me that Jesus really did die and rose again. Show me all the evidence. Prove to me this by science, right? That's what our world demands. Why? Because they have not experienced the power of God in conversion. Now, on the other hand, it says the Greeks uh, wanted wisdom. They desired wisdom. Jews want a sign. Greeks want wisdom. And the Greeks represent the Gentile world in general. In fact, it's the same word in the Greek, which means Gentile or just nations. And you may know this already, but prior to the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire was the worldwide empire. Under Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire had conquered most of the the known world then. And as a consequence, Grecian religion and Grecian influence was still felt all over the world, even in Jesus' day. Now, one of the unique things about the Greek culture was their heavy emphasis on philosophy. The Greeks produced some of the greatest thinkers this world has ever known. 
Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, all came out of the nation of Greece. And so you might imagine this had an impact not only on the Greece citizens, but even on the cultures where this Grecian influence had been felt. Therefore, and I want you to catch with this for a moment, when Paul addresses the Greeks, he is speaking directly to the Corinthian church. He's speaking to the influence of the Greeks that had made its way into the church to elevate what? To elevate the philosophy of man, man's philosophical abilities. I mean, think about that lineage. Plato, Aristotle, right? There, there's a little bit of heritage there that might, uh, one might be prone to hold on to. And yet Paul's going right after that. Their love for philosophy and human wisdom was actually causing division among them. Why? Because, simply put, I don't know that this book really fits with philosophy and human wisdom on its own. It doesn't fit with God's system. When man creates a system on his own with a different objective and a different driving force, it doesn't mesh with the Word of God. And therefore, all these divisions were occurring because they were bringing in human wisdom into the church. So then, this was a very real and present danger in their midst. And actually, Paul warns about this all over the place in the New Testament. Colossians 2.8 is one place where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see, friends, this is the level of danger that the Corinthians were treading upon by going to the tradition of men, by going to... As he says in Colossians 2.8, philosophy and empty deception, they were risking replacing Christ altogether. So, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom, and yet Paul sets both of these forward to contrast the truth of the matter. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The Jews stumbled over this, which means they didn't believe. There was disbelief. They didn't see it coming. They tripped and they fell. There was not belief from the Jews. And at the same time, the Greeks, it it didn't make any sense. It didn't fit with their philosophical system. It didn't tie in with what they knew about philosophy. Further, it didn't tie in with any of the Greek gods and the stories that they were familiar with. And so, it says, to the Jews it was a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles it was just utter foolishness. Therefore, they rejected it. And friends, again, this is just so, I mean, maybe I'm just immersed in this and thinking about it through our culture, but this is exactly what we see today. These are the two groups of people that we see today. Those who demand a sign, who say, well, I would believe in God if, if he would do a sign for me, if he would heal this person, or if he would, you know, uproot that mountain and move it. You know what I'd say to that? No, you wouldn't. You still wouldn't believe. And I can prove it with Scripture. The rich man and Lazarus. You still would not believe. Why? Because if you don't listen to the Scriptures, you won't listen even if God raises a man from the dead. Okay? So that's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have people just like the Greeks in this scenario who view it as foolishness according to man-made philosophy. According to a man-made worldview. Man-made ideologies. It doesn't fit with their system, so they reject it. Friends, be careful. man. My heart is so to warn you. you. If you're at MSU, if you're in the world, if you watch TV or listen to the radio, then you have already been immersed into these two major philosophies, these two major mindsets. Now let me ask this question. Can we as Christians fall into that? Can we fall into that trap? Uh, let me remind you who Paul's writing to. He's writing to the Corinthian church. Yes, we can fall into that. We need to be very careful that we don't fall into these traps. Verse 24. What Paul's going to do now is he's going to introduce a new category of people. You've got Jews. You've got the Greeks. That's foolishness too. Now look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, friends, I want to say to you, Paul is redrawing dividing lines. This is so exciting. They've got all this conflict, and Paul's really doing biblical counseling right now. 
And what he does is he redraws the dividing line and he introduces a whole new group of people. Look in your Bibles. Who's the new group of people? Who's the new group of people in verse 24? It's two words and there's an article. The new group of people is the called. You've got the Jews who need a sign you've got, and who stumble over it. You've got the Greeks who want wisdom and it's foolishness. And now you've got this third group of people, which is the called. The called. The, the called by who? Well, the called by God. Those whom God has called out of both of these systems of thinking. From who? Well, actually from the Jews and from the Gentiles. You see, the called is a unique group of people that God has divided apart from the rest of the world that are to be a unified people. And what's unique about the called? Look at verse 24. To those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the power of God addressing the need for the sign and the wisdom of God addressing the need for this philosophy. You see, friends, for those of us who've been born again, for those of us in the group of the called, man, the gospel, again, is the power of God. This is our sign. The gospel is the greatest philosophical concept that we can consider. I mean, I encourage you, listen to some of these philosophical Christians like Ravi Zacharias or these other guys who just think so well through the Christian faith. Their philosophical arguments stand far above anything the world has to offer. The gospel brings both the greatest philosophy and the greatest power that is possibly imaginable. And if you're in that group, then you know that. Now again, think about the division that was occurring in the Corinthian church. They were, they were arguing about these sort of issues. They were arguing about human wisdom matters. And yet Paul is laying the framework of the cross to show them, guys, you're on the same team. You've been called you are the called. You're not the world. Therefore, you should be unified. And verse 25 closes by really addressing, how is this possible? How does God do this? Well, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, even the seemingly weak things of God, even the things that if, if it could be the lowest things of God, still far exceed the greatest things that man can do. I think there's a reason. I mean, Paul puts this at the end. I think even in looking at how could God do this? How could God bring together Jews and Greeks into one body and create unity? In the same way, how can God bring together me and you? I have strong preferences. I really like football. I'm sure some of you don't like football. I really like certain types of foods that I'm sure some of you don't like. And we could go down the list one by one by one and find reasons why we should not be unified. And yet, you think about it, God has the power to do that. Even the seemingly weak things of God are far greater than what man can do. And I would submit to you, it doesn't take a lot of effort for God to unify the church. And yet, wow, what an amazing act. Can any world power do that? I don't think they can. I don't think any human philosophy can take people from all different tribes, all different tongues, all different nations, all different uh, economic statuses, all different personalities, men and women and old people and young people. I mean, think about the, the church. There's nothing on the planet like it. And yet God can bring it together and unify it somehow. What in the world? How does he do that? Well, you want to know how? Because God's even seemingly weak things are so much wiser than men. So much more powerful. And here's the final note, is that God's wisdom and power is far separated from man's wisdom and power. So let's close. Let's land this plane. I do want to come back, and I want to consider now just three quick takeaways. How do we think about this in terms of our ministry? What do we pull away to have our mindset for ministry? Well, first... Don't be tempted to wander off from the simple message of the gospel. Don't be tempted to wander off from the simple message of the gospel. This is what we're called to do. Like Paul, we are called to preach Christ and Him crucified. Don't allow your message to be confused with philosophical wisdom or the fabrication of signs or miracles or trying to draw on other sources of power. Christ is our sign. Christ is our power. And when someone believes in Him, that will be enough. In addition, number two, we see that results are not our lot. In other words, results are not up to us. We simply cast out the line, so to speak. I'm not talking about fishers for men. I'm talking about the dividing line. 
and let God divide. Our job is to proclaim the message. God divides humanity. God will be drawing those whom he's drawing. And so our job is to be faithful to share the message. And finally, we see from this passage that God desires us to have a unified identity as the church. As believers, we are unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are appointed unto a single purpose. A single purpose. Our identity, then, is a community of those who know the power of God personally and who are there, therefore to be a light to this world. That is who we are, friends. That should be our greatest identity. Therefore, I just want to give a final plug. You need to be here this summer. You need to be here this summer because the rest of this, these first three chapters are going to flesh out more of what this identity is like. Paul's addressing disunity. Do we need to hear that? Yes, we do. Paul's addressing what their mindset for ministry as a church should be. Do we need to hear that? Yes, we do. We need to adopt the mindset that Paul has and his desire for the Corinthian church. We need it, friends. We don't just, it's not a want. It is a desperate need. So I'd encourage you to come back for the rest of the summer. And thankfully, this is the last time you have to listen to me. Some other guys are going to get some opportunities to preach. So it's going to be really, really exciting and fun. So let's bow in prayer, and then we'll close with a final song. God in heaven, Lord, we, we beg of you, we ask of you, Lord, move our hearts away from apathy. So easy to be caught up in our day-to-day -day routine. So easy to be wandering our minds to something else that may be going on right now or wishing we were somewhere else. God, forgive us. Lord, keep us from sin in this way. Help us to singly devote our mind on you. And Lord, as we've looked at this word, even if maybe some of us have not been paying attention until right now, Lord, I pray that you would drive the truth of this passage into our hearts. Lord, change us from the inside out. Change our passions. Change our inner affections. Lord, change what we are excited about. Lord, we're so easily distracted by empty pursuits, empty pleasures, but Lord, what fulfillment there is when we are looking to Christ and living as he wants us to live. Lord, help us to be great ambassadors this summer and for the rest of our lives. But starting right now, Lord, we want to be faithful to be outreaching, to be sharing our faith, Lord, to be pushing new frontiers of gospel ministry, Lord, to be faithful and to trust you with the results. So Lord, I pray that you would implement these three takeaways into our minds, Lord, into our hearts, that we would focus on the simplicity of the gospel, Lord, that that would be our single message. Lord, that we would not trust in man's wisdom, that we wouldn't try to fabricate signs and muddy the gospel with other things. Lord, we pray that we would just be faithful and trust you with the results. And God, lastly, we pray that we would be unified as the body of Christ. We need your help, God. I don't naturally love people like I ought to. So, Lord, we need your help to love one another well, to build one another up so that when we go out into the workplace, Lord, into the battlefield, that we have the courage, Lord, the support from one another to do so with boldness. God, this is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.